In October, we saw the biggest journalistic collaboration to date. The Pandora Papers were the result of a gargantuan effort that included 600 journalists from 150 media outlets in 117 countries combing through 12 million documents. Collaborative, investigative journalism is becoming a more common feature on the media landscape, as witnessed by the recent Facebook file saga. But it's not exactly natural for journalists, who are competitive by nature, always trying to get the scoop. We spoke to two experienced guests from the investigative journalism field about how collaborative investigative journalism is evolving, the challenges it entails, and the role that leaks play in making investigative journalism happen. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Media Insider, a uh, podcast about the uh, nuts and bolts of media management, product, people, and organization. Today, we're talking about one of the most challenging but important types of journalism, investigative journalism. We've just had the Pandora Papers uh, landing a couple of weeks ago. We see the rise of collaborative uh, journalism, but uh, what does the future hold? How can we maximize the impact of investigative journalism? I'm thrilled to be joined today by two great guests, the managing editor of the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists, Fergus Scheel. Welcome, Fergus. It's lovely to be here, Jakob. Thank you for inviting me. So uh, just to let you know a little bit, ACIJ, we are based in Washington, D.C. We're a not-for-profit newsroom of about 40 people, and we work with uh, reporters all around the world in our most recent project. As you mentioned, Pandora Papers, we've worked with uh, more than 600 journalists in 117 countries uh, from 150 publications. We've previously been responsible for the second biggest collaboration in history, the first being Pandora and the second one was Finstein Files, which was another massive undertaking. And uh, we are firm believers in collaboration. Yeah, we believe it's the future of journalism. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm also thrilled to be joined by uh, Brigitte Alfter, the director for Arena uh, for Journalism in Europe, as well as a lecturer at the University of Gothenburg, amongst many other things. Uh, Welcome, Brigitte. Thank you, Jakob, and pleasure to meet you and pleasure to be part of this discussion about the future of journalism. Arena is registered as a non-profit in the Netherlands and our main task is to create an arena, a meeting space where journalists can meet to discuss indeed collaboration. We do that in an an open access way in an annual big uh, investigative journalism conference every year in May. It's called the Data Harvest. And we also do that by creating uh, topical networks where journalists can meet and address uh, pressuring questions of the time, like the climate, the housing crisis and, and the like. What Arena tries to do is to create an open access meeting space so that journalists can meet and build the necessary trust for collaborations. Thank you, Brigitte, and that's certainly a very inspiring place to start. I'd love to talk a little bit first about Pandora Papers, the most recent sort of big collaborative investigation, biggest uh, document leak, uh, biggest collaboration of journalists, a lot of superlatives. But this is actually the latest in the series, right? And we've seen quite a few of them already. The Luxembourg leaks, the FinCEN files, the Panama Paradise and Pandora Papers. There's even been jokes that you need to start the name of your investigation with P if you want it to be taken seriously. But um, Fergus, can you tell us a little bit more about why this kind of format, why these kind of big, not to say dumps, but sort of a lot of stories coming together, being released at the same time. What's sort of the idea behind this kind of approach? 
the great advantage of collaboration is that it overcomes distance, it overcomes language, it overcomes fear and legal threats, and it produces a remarkable impact at the end. But really, it's also a question of necessity. So when you get, in this case, in Pandora Papers, more than 11.9 million documents, it is just a vast and deeply challenging undertaking to make sense of them. And really, so at ICIJ, in effect, we have about 10 journalists. We have other people that are IT specialists. So what do you do with 10 journalists to try and make sense of 11.9 million documents? You just can't. It would take it years. It would take it you know, decades, probably. So the only answer, I mean, well, there are other answers, but the answer that we believe is the, is, is the best one is to share, is radical sharing. To And it's completely counterintuitive for journalists because journalists usually are lone wolves. They usually do their own story. They don't even tell their editor, never mind any other people. So we completely upend that and share with everyone. And as a consequence of that, you bring a real expertise across the globe, a local expertise to the reporting, and you overcome so many obstacles. You overcome the fear of lawyers threatening you. You overcome the fears of governments threatening you. You overcome, people become braver, develop expertise, you build expertise from project to project. And we have found that it's a remarkably successful model. I think that's really understandable when we look at the process of producing all of these pieces of content, all of this investigative work. What about the distribution side when it comes to sharing it? Why release all of the stories in a single, in sort of just one go? After all, Nowadays, there's a lot of noise uh, that people have to deal with. There is um, a lot of distractions. Uh, The news cycle is very quick. Wouldn't it be easier to stay on the radar if you were, for example, releasing new pieces of the Pandora Papers every week or every month? Well, we are continuing. We do continue to release. So we released the first lot of stories over three days, but we've got more stories to come. But really, the the answer to your question is, there's two answers. One is that it builds trust amongst the reporters. No one's going to get scooped by someone else. So that's the first thing. So And no reporter uh, likes to be scooped. In fact, that's the reason why you are a reporter is not to be scooped, to break news. So it allows everyone to break news at the same time. And that's vitally important because if you breach that trust, well, then there's no point to a collaboration. If somebody goes early, well, then everyone else gets annoyed. Um, And you've seen that with the Facebook papers where um, they're all, um, according to news reports anyway, they're all fighting with one another because the New York Times went early. The New York Times went early with us on China cables. And as a result, there were reporters all across the world that were burning copies of the New York Times. They were so furious. So that's the first thing. You have to have trust. And the second one is impact. If you're knock, knocking on a wall with one hammer, it produces a certain amount of impact. If you're knocking on a wall with hundreds of hammers at the same time, it produces a much greater impact. And that's what we do. We knock on walls with hundreds of hammers. I also think there's there are multiple layers in that. One is to do this big splash where you set the agenda internationally, globally, as we've seen with the ICIJ. And you can, we, we see them, I mean, the ICIJ keeps publishing. We also see that with others who do a big investigation, do the big splash, and then even start hiring in. There's a European project called Investigate Europe. They start hiring in someone who then chips into this fantastic knowledge that the team has gained in the investigation to follow up and follow the news stream and see, okay, Right now, this is totally on. There was a case they they looked into the prices of vaccines uh, or into vaccines in general in Europe. And then there was a big discussion about the vaccine prices. And so their news colleague 
chipped into the collective knowledge of the investigative team and did the follow-up stories. And they had this exclusively because they had this knowledge. I think some of the tendency or the, the wish to have a big splash in the international agenda setting is obviously also related to the competitive approach to journalism, as Fergus said, but also to the investigative work cycle. So when we dive deeply into something, we close the newsroom doors and we totally focus. We have an assumption we cannot publish that uh, without risking various libel cases if we cannot document it. So we go behind newsroom roars, then we publish, big splash, and then we follow up. So I think there is definitely a value in the in the knowledge, the shared knowledge of such a team that we could use in the next level to enrich the news and to keep the topic on the agenda. But you also have to say that collaborative journalism, the way we practice this, I mean, the ICIJ was founded in 1997. So there are a bit more than 20 years. You're going towards the quarter century. But collaborative journalism as such is maybe a decade old as a respected mindset and method. And so we are still experimenting with the development of how to use the, for example, how to use the knowledge in a collective team and how to use that knowledge to bring a topic or keep a topic on the public agenda. How do you see uh, collaborative journalism changing and evolving? From being something on the fringe, from something totally experimental, where we in the early days, we didn't call it collaborative journalism. We wanted this information. And I got a no to an FOI request from the European Commission for a Europe-wide data set. And so we set up a team. We collaborated with colleagues in the capitals to FOIA on national level. And then we compiled the data set. Thank you very much. We got it at the end. And it worked. And so from there, it sort of developed. And then we saw, A, by publishing different countries, we can set the agenda. We can gain what today is called impact. We could see that collaborating helped some colleagues in countries where they faced threats. They felt more secure when they were in a daily or weekly contact with colleagues abroad. Uh, We see now with the big projects like Forbidden Stories, where they investigate topics that have been abandoned because the journalist, the most prominent case, the journalist was killed. So an international team moves in, surmounts the security issues and investigates together. So we see that from the experimenting, it's moving into the mainstream. And journalists use it as a part of their method box, their toolbox, and see that in some cases competition is fine, and in some cases collaboration is fine. So we enlarge our network, our toolbox simply to to include collaboration as one option to achieve this, this, or this. Maybe turning to the audience side of things, how do you see the audience response evolving? So there's now been, again, it's almost a cycle of increasingly large investigations, but even beyond sort of the various uh, Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, Pandora Papers, I think there's more and more sort of collaborative projects that are appearing across the world on larger or smaller scales. How is the audience changing? And bearing in mind that we've sort of just gone through four years where I think the amount of uh, crises, um, both political and non-political, have maybe burnt out uh, people's ability to pay attention to important issues. A lot of people just want to go back to normality, whatever that means. We have networks that reach out to communities. And collaborative journalism in the digital age is unique in connecting citizens, the audiences, with those in power. 
because we can have a journalist. I can mention one project that was coordinated by Arena, which is called Cities for Rent, addressing the housing crisis, which is prominent in Dublin, it's in Athens, it's in Berlin, it's all over the place. And by working with local media, or sometimes even hyper-local only in this particular city, and then connecting them through a network on European level, we can both be in touch with the citizens, speaking their language, listening to their problems on the ground, and then bringing through the network of journalists. So in the team, doing this additional, going the additional mile to bring these citizens' voices to decision makers. I think this is a particular strength of collaborative journalism. Fergus, would love to sort of get your sense of how has the sort of the public response, and by public I mean the sort of the, the audience response uh, been to the Pandora Papers versus what you've seen previously? So the response has been huge. It's It's been really gratifying to see um, there's been street protests and there's been, I think it's more than 10 government inquiries have been announced. As you're probably aware, the Czech election, Andreas Babis lost the election and people say that we were partly responsible for that. Um, in Chile, presidents under threat of impeachment. In Ecuador, there's an inquiry into the prime minister. And all across the world, there's been a huge impact. Our work in this line of inquiries, Panama Paradise, Pandora, um, is about tax inequality. And we were concerned that people would be jaded by that. But they weren't. It turns out they're not. They have a great appetite for it. And going back to some of your earlier questions that Brigitte mentioned, are some issues. So, what we're seeing is the audience growing in some way. So Pandora, we had 25 new countries. We had reporters from 25 new countries working on it. So that's an example of the expansion of it. Since Pandora came out, I've been contacted by art reporters. I've also been contacted by reporters who work specifically on LGBTQ issues. I've been contacted by other reporters. So reporters in different fields of and with different expertise are now trying to embrace the collaborative model in the same way that Forbidden Stories has. And so you're seeing a widening of the pool of reporters interested in the model and a widening of the audience interest in the model. And happily, uh, despite our concerns, people aren't, uh, audiences aren't jaded. That's actually a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next, which is the kind of topics that we can cover with collaborative journalism. Because I spent quite a few years reporting um, from Ukraine and uh, in Ukraine, the issue of tax avoidance and uh, uh, various financial um, improprieties is something that people are just fed up with. They've seen it from time to time, they'll, the vase will overflow. Um, but uh, most of the time, people just see it as another regular Tuesday that another politician is found with offshore accounts or, or some oligarch who's involved, involved in um, manipulating uh, finances. The issue of sort of tax avoidance, it's an important one. It is one of the big topics of our time. Um, I think that's fair to say. But for a lot of people, it's very nebulous. And I guess the question that I have is, how should investigative reporters in particular think about the topics that they choose? Should they be looking more in order to people engaged, get them to care? Should they be looking for topics that are more related to quality of life issues, for example, directly related, right? Obviously, tax avoidance does have an impact uh, down the line. Is there sort of a bigger learning as well that we should be looking for other topics to sort of engage people on? That's funny you should say this. So Open Democracy raised this with me the other day, and I was surprised because, I'll tell you what, at the heart of every crime is money, okay? And People say, well, if it's a financial investigation, isn't that boring? It's just another financial investigation. But it's not. And I'll explain why. So with Pandora Papers, we did a story about the looting of Cambodian, Cambodian art. 
3.5 million people read it on the Washington Post. With Pandora Papers, we did stories about tenants being booted out of their houses unfairly in Florida and across the US because of, co- because of hedge funds owning their tenancy. With Pandora Papers, we did stories about abusive Catholic groups not compensating their victims. See, at the heart of it all was money, but our stories weren't all dull tales of opaque offshore accounts. Journalists can make anything interesting if they put their mind to it. I think that's a fair point that you need to sort of make it relevant to people and you can. And certainly there have been great ones. But uh, Brigitte, I would love to hear your thoughts on cities for rent. And I think this is there's been this sort of housing is also one of the big uh, sort of topics and how that has worked. Was there a sort of purposeful idea to go after um, a topic that is, you know, outside of the realm of classical financial investigation, at least from a tax perspective? Investigative journalism and collaborative journalism is not only the ICIJ. We love the ICIJ. We'll, we are all inspired and I'm I'm an old one of the old members, so just to be very frank. But we see so in all reporting, we see differences between those who are built upon major leaks. That's one way of reporting. It sort of gives a certain direction. If you have the access to the Pandora Papers, obviously that would be the entrance to the story. We also see more and more in collaborative journals, we see a lot of small teams. So that would be three, five, seven, fifteen people, not uh, hundreds, um, who don't, uh, may, they may or may not have a permanent structure. Maybe they only meet for one investigation. And in these smaller teams, we see very much um, bottom up topics where they say, we talk with people and they see a problem. And that's why we try to build that topic from scratch. So that's obviously a different way of researching when you have access to a leak or internal documents. I mean, we know with the history of the ICIJ that the director had been investigating tax issues and then he got this hard drive and then he built the team that or he brought this into the ICIJ and the teams picked it up. But we see a lot of small teams who see, okay, there's a problem with housing. This is why we collaborate. Or there's a problem with climate or lobbyism, these kind of things. So that colleagues meet each other in open fora, like the European Investigative Journalism Conference Data Harvest, where they say, oh, I'm also working on that. I'm also working on that. I remember when we put housing as a shared problem on the agenda, I'm, there were colleagues from London and from Bologna. They, they embraced each other and said, I should have known you before. We see that the, uh, if we look at uh, housing again, there are massive problems in cities with online rental platforms hoovering inner cities for affordable housing and renting it all to tourists. And the cities themselves cannot do really anything, but the online rental platforms then do massive lobby efforts at the European level. And if we compare that to the US, that would be federal level where the cities or the citizens have, they don't, they don't come there, don't, don't get there. Whereas the, the big tech companies, they have, they can afford the lobbying. So when you build collaborative teams based upon a topic, it's very much built on what's already there. So you see journalists reporting on an online rental platform hoovering the inner city of Amsterdam, the city of Amsterdam not really being terribly powerful on its own. And then journalists connect to address the problem. The stories are all there. And eventually, some of the journalists will hopefully work with the ICIJ and say, hey, can we find that in your data set? 
and then the ICIJ puts some of the, the tax avoidance data sets online or shares them with trusted partners, and then the story will be followed up there. But so I think we can address the story topics from various angles, and you can be happy about that as a journalist, but sad about it as a citizen. There are always enough stories for all of us. I'd love to ask a question about sort of the importance of leaks and the importance of obtaining documents for investigations. So I think one of the, the points that you mentioned, Birgitta, is if I paraphrase a little bit, is kind of the difference in approach being you get the leak and then you start working. I mean, obviously, you've been working on a topic for a while. It's not like it comes in an open space, but um, versus the ones where you sort of proactively try to dig up documents to build a knowledge base and then sort of go forward. To what extent are sort of these kind of leaks crucial? We know a lot about the leaks because the leaks currently and more and more these years are immense. They're huge in size. And so they are also huge in the agenda setting impact. So we hear, hear about that. But I would, I guess I can say the majority of journalists does not have access to leaks. So you get leaks either through working with a very well-known media, working with a very well-known network, or by working with a source that over time trusts you enough to give you a material, a hard drive, documents, whatever. Um, so that's that's one way of doing it. And there are loads of journalists who don't have access to leaks, and they would then build a story idea from scratch. And it's just, it's a different approach. And I think that when you are in a big medium or in a big network, then you are geared to, I mean, uh, Fergus has so many people who are capable of dealing with a big leak. Not everybody has that. This is a very specialized uh, competence. I think it was not by accident that when people get big leaks, they turn to the ICIJ and say, hey, you have this competence. Can we talk? ICIJ doesn't just do leaks. Implant files wasn't a leak. Um, that was a huge project about medical devices. Solitary voices wasn't a leak. That was a project about people being unfairly put into solitary confinement in US detention centers. Neither of them were leaks. They were both publicly available data. And in the case of implant files, it was 7 million files that was publicly available. The difference was we took the 7 million files and made sense of them because no one else had done it before. So I agree completely with what Bridget said. There's a certain, there's a competence to it. You know, it's really difficult. The idea that a you, you're given a leak and then you have a story. So anyone who thinks you're given a leak and then you have a story is, is is got rocks in their head. You're given a leak and then you have a problem. Like you have a massive problem because you have to make sense of it and you have to go way beyond the documents. And so with Pandora papers it was simpler than FinCEN. FinCEN was like um, a whole lot of reporters reading a different a foreign language. It was really impenetrable. Um, with China Cables, all the documents were, it was a leak, but all the documents were in Chinese, so we had a huge problem there. Pandora, there was massive problems with identifying who's in the documents, going beyond the documents to see that it was the same person, going beyond the documents to see what the companies were doing, going on beyond the documents to see if there was anything incorrect about what they were doing or improper about what they were doing. Getting a leak in time, it sets you way back. It sets, like you're going backwards in time when you get a leak. You're not going forwards because you then have to spend months and months and months plowing into it to make sense of it. Even the simple fact of organizing the documents so that you can search them, that takes months. So um, it's come with huge upsides, but huge downsides. And we are just very fortunate that we can work with reporters around the world. And we're also very fortunate that some of those reporters work with some of those outlets that Brigitte mentioned that are small. They're tiny. There could be two or three people, but they're really good at what they do. 
Uh, or there could be somebody like Aloysius David in Liberia who works on his own using a mobile phone because he doesn't actually have a publication and his stuff gets published in the next neighboring country. So expertise doesn't come with a large media organization. Expertise comes with a reporter with a particular gift. The mention of the implant files is really a good example because there again it was first a national story and then it was lifted to the global level by contacting the ICIJ because this was not a leak, it was a story idea. And then the ICIJ, with its competence in massive data sets and in coordinating global teams, stepped in and scaled the story to the level where it belonged because of the business structures and the, the marketing and uh, regulation structures. I think, again, you know, it, what Brigitte mentioned is true. So they came to us from the Netherlands, the story from Yet yeah, Schutten came to us with the idea and then we built from her idea out. A better place to start in all stories, I think, anyway, is don't start with a leak or not a leak. Start with a broken system. Okay, this is the trick. Okay, if, if your listeners want to trick for journalism, here's the trick. Start with a broken system. Once you begin with the broken system, you progress from there. Because if you have a broken system, you have stories. If you have stories, that can be one story, which is a good story, or many stories, which is good. And if that broken system is an international story, story, a system, you're halfway there, then you go cross-border, which is why Brigitte and her housing issues. It's, see, the housing, it's not housing that's the issue. It's, it's housing in Poland. It's housing in Dublin. It's housing in San Francisco. It's housing. You have a broken system. It's not a, a medical device that's broken that's the problem. It's the medical devices that's across the world. That's the trick. Then you go cross-border and collaborate. That's a fantastic piece of advice. And um, I also seem to have uh, surmised that uh, the Pandora papers were actually named after the uh, headache that opening that leak uh, caused uh, everybody. We're almost out of time, but maybe before we go, um, what do you see as, as sort of the uh, the main challenges or obstacles that we need to overcome to, to have more um, great collaborative investigative journalism? I think funding is, is definitely a big thing. We have a lot of cross-border collaborative journalism has been supported by philanthropic funding, foundations, also government funding stepping in. So, But whether this is connected to collaborative journalism being a young method or whether it's connected to the general uh, difficulties in in, in funding media, I leave that to the experts. But funding is definitely a thing because there are coordination competencies that cost extra money. I do believe that they also may ultimately we may be able to save money because the the again the cities for rent um, example meant that we uh, much of the publication the visualization all that it was totally centralized so with all the data on one server we could see how many people accessed from which country so within a month we had these 960,000 users uh, or readers because. All the graphic design was on our server and they saw they pulled the data. So I believe there could be some some opportunities there to, to save money by collaborating on the same story. And the ICIJ surely also has examples in that direction. It's just not developed yet because we are journalists. We are not necessarily marketing people. And the, the other thing is, I think, education. So as you said, I'm involved in a and teaching at the University of Gothenburg, which is, has developed this, I think, visionary because early um, master course where they learn investigative data and indeed cross-border collaborative journalism. And I think uh, cross-border collaboration is a mindset as well, so that you, you try to solve a broken system, as Fergus said, across borders and where the system is broken and where you can look for a solution. 
and bringing in this mindset to the students from the very early uh, stages or to other colleagues who are fascinated by the by the potential i think this the, there's some teaching training to do and we'll do that in our generation so the next generation is up and running i would agree the funding is a huge problem covid uh, knocked icij for six it's really difficult we lost a lot of money because of covid um, simply holding documents people don't think it is but we make all our documents or many of our documents uh, publicly available through the offshore leaks database holding those documents in servers costs a small fortune each year and so it's not simply just doing the work and overseeing massive collaborations that's expensive so that's one thing uh, another thing is legal intimidation across the world injunctions there's such a problem they're just a growing problem all across and then there's just pure naked intimidation there's countries all across latin america eastern europe um, Asia, Africa, where journalists are in constant, living in constant fear of a knock on the door. And that is a real problem for investigative journalists. And then there's timidity, uh, which is many media organizations would prefer just to do opinion pieces and celebrity pieces and do not want to go anywhere near journalism in the public interest because it's not profitable. Well, on that optimistic note... <laughs> you always have to be an optimist. Well, the challenge is notwithstanding. I think if we look at the output and that, that has been increasing over the last few years, there are certainly reasons to be optimistic of people that are persevering despite the system. Unfortunately, that's all that we have time for today. Uh, thank you so much um, for uh, joining the podcast and uh, this discussion and um, hope to see lots of great collaborative uh, work uh, to be discussed in the future. Look forward to that too. Thank you for now. Thanks, Brigitte. Thanks, Jakob.